Settlement to Superpower by Abraham Ash. Episode 1, Expanding Horizons. So, hello everybody and welcome back. As I got to work writing my planned episode number 1, which was supposed to have been a thorough examination of the many motives which drove the English to colonize North America, I found my research growing out uncontrollably in all directions like some deadline-obsessed octopus. There was just so much information and background that after a week or so of mercilessly relegating various fascinating tidbits to the cutting floor, I just deleted all my work on the episode and decided to begin anew. Only this time, I would not try to rush through the background material. I decided to savor it, to suck the marrow out of it. In short, to begin episode 1 not with the English looking westward, but rather from the beginning, with the exploratory and colonial efforts of their southern counterparts, the Spanish and the Portuguese. Over the next several episodes, we will dive into the guts of the European trade routes and their need to find new ones, the Portuguese expeditions around the Cape of Good Hope, the Spanish discovery and subjugation of the New World, and of course, the origins of the name America. After that, we'll turn back to the English and examine their desperate attempts to challenge the Iberian stranglehold on commerce and colonization, as well as the economic and social conditions at home, which eventually would lead them down a path of overseas colonization and empire. When we're done with that, then we will finally begin the story of Virginia. So, let's go back to the dawn of the 15th century and examine the state of commerce between Europe and Eastern Asia. European trade with Eastern Asia had been going on to a significant extent since the days of the Roman Empire, and by the age of the Renaissance, such trade was well established and systematic, even if the imported luxuries were well beyond the means of the vast majority of Europeans. Europeans were dependent on the East for the lion's share of their luxuries. For starters, there was silk, which you were pretty much only able to get from China. For over a thousand years, the silkworm was China's most jealously guarded secret, so much so that the Chinese emperors would execute anybody who even attempted to export silkworms or the secrets of sericulture. Eventually, however, Europeans managed to smuggle out the silkworm. The Byzantine historian Procopius tells us that that occurred when two Nestorian monks in the service of the Emperor Justinian hid some silkworm eggs in the hollow of their bamboo canes. From Byzantium, sericulture, or the production of silk, spread throughout the Mediterranean world. However, despite the Chinese loss of their total monopoly over the silk trade, they still were the most important source for quality European silks, both in terms of quantity and quality. China was also the source of musk, jade, and porcelain, which until this very day is known to us as China. To the south of China, you had the Malay archipelago, particularly the Spice Islands or the Malaccas, which were the only source of a number of expensive spices and perfumes, including nutmeg, mace, cloves, and camphor. And further to the west, you had India itself. The land of diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds, 
of pepper and ginger, of cinnamon, pearls, and fragrant woods. Persia and Iraq were the source of rugs, sugar, and opium, while Arabia yielded frankincense and myrrh. In short, while Europe was basically economically self-sufficient insofar as the basics, such as grains and wool, were concerned, it was still entirely reliant upon the Orient for its luxuries. There were three basic trade routes by which Eastern goods would arrive at Western markets, collectively referred to as the Silk Road. Of course, these trade routes were hardly static or fixed, and particular legs of each route were constantly shifting and changing in response to world events. But nonetheless, these three trade routes retained, in some form or another, a certain fixity of course until the mid-15th century. The southernmost of these trade routes was almost entirely by sea. Chinese, Japanese, and Malay traders would gather goods along the Chinese coast and Spice Islands, from where they would head towards the ancient city of Malacca, along the coast of what is now Peninsular Malaysia. Malacca was perhaps the Orient's foremost commercial entrepot during the Middle Ages, and it was here that Chinese, Malay, Indian, Persian, and Arab merchants would converge to trade their wares. From Malacca, the Arabs and Indians would transport the eastern goods up to India's Malabar coast, where a new bout of trading would ensue. From there, the Arabs would bring their merchandise to the western coast of the Red Sea, from where they would ferry their goods by boat along the Nile and then overland by caravan to Alexandria, where the goods would then enter what we're going to refer to as the European market. The European market was dominated by its central conduit, the Mediterranean, which was itself dominated by the Italians, primarily the two great rival republics, Venice and Genoa. Indeed, the story of medieval Mediterranean trade is largely the story of these two republics' bitter feuds. Each of them attempted to outtrade the other by means of colonizing various Mediterranean islands and cities, purchasing monopolies from various coastal cities, and engaging in intermittent trade and open wars. The Venetian and Genoese trade empires were extensive, and they had autonomous colonies everywhere, from Alexandria to Constantinople, from Palestine to the Crimea. The second trade route began in the same way as the first, but split off from it in India. Instead of the wares being transferred to the Red Sea, they would instead be brought to the Persian Gulf port city of Hormuz, where they would travel a web of interconnected trade routes westward, passing through cities such as Tabriz, Baghdad, Mosul, Damascus, and Aleppo, before splitting into two, with the southern route culminating on the Mediterranean coast in the coastal cities of Beirut and Jaffa, and the northern route running through Anatolia before culminating in Constantinople. The third trade route, Far to the north of the two routes we've previously mentioned was the overland route. This route ran overland through the vast Chinese interior, across the Gobi Desert and the vast steppes of Central Asia, stopping at cities such as Samarkand, Merv, Tashkent, and Bukhara, before splitting in two. The southern route would run down and join the Persian route beginning at Ormuz, while the northern route would continue onwards to the north where it would end in the Crimea and at the mouth of the River Don. 
These trade routes were perilous, beset as they were by storm and typhoon, pirates, bandits, and marauding tribesmen. The commodities would trade hands up to tens of times, and each time the items would rise in price, a process only exacerbated by trade imposts, poll taxes, and port fees which they would encounter along the way. In short, commerce with the East was unstable, risky, and exorbitantly expensive, and yet it continued on at full steam. Throughout the first half of the 15th century, however, a new menace emerged, which threatened to sever the tenuous trade links between East and West. This menace was the Ottoman Turks. The Ottomans, a Turkish tribal conglomerate which derives its name from its founder, Osman, had been steadily expanding, overrunning most of Anatolia. In 1442-1443, the Ottomans finally took Constantinople, massacring the Venetians and Genoese who had joined in the defense of the hapless city. All of the old privileges and trade rights granted by the Byzantines were cancelled, and heavy restrictions were now laid upon the Italian traders. Over the next 50 years, things got progressively worse for the Italians. The Ottoman Turks expanded steadily in all directions, and in the course of a 16-year war, bloodily subjugated the Venetian and Genoese colonies in Greece, the Aegean, Crete, and Crimea. The Bosporus and Dardanelles were now closed to all shipping, but those who would pay heavy tribute, and the once-dominant Italian republics entered a state of eclipse from which they would never truly emerge. The final nail in the Silk Road's coffin came in 1517, when the Ottomans conquered the Mamluk Saracen lands to the south, including Syria, Palestine, and eventually Egypt. This, combined with growing unrest between the various Tatar tribes in Central Asia, completely blocked off all the traditional avenues of trade. The Silk Road was dead. Now, we shouldn't come off all this thinking that the Turks established a total moratorium on all trade with the West. On the contrary, a great deal of Italian cities who didn't have colonies in the East, such as Florence, Pisa, and Ancona, were doing quite a bit of business with the Ottomans, and even the Venetians were allowed to conduct some trade, albeit on a much reduced level. Nonetheless, the early Ottoman stance was fundamentally indisposed towards trade, and the once steady flow of goods through Ottoman lands decreased dramatically. But even as the supply of eastern luxuries was drying up, the demand in the west was hardly decreasing. On the contrary, such demand was growing by leaps and bounds, primarily driven by the decline in serfdom in Europe following the horrific depopulation of the Black Death. A third of Europe's population had died from the plague, which meant that workers were no longer cheap. This essentially spelled the death of feudalism, as the combination of rising wages and the falling cost of land allowed for an unprecedented degree of social mobility. Thus peasants, who formerly lived at the very edge of subsistence, were now in many instances able to better their lot and redeem themselves financially. The prosperity this brought about increased the European desire for Eastern luxuries, at the very same time as the volume of goods transported along the Silk Road was decreasing. So, what were the Europeans to do? 
how are they supposed to gain access to the markets of the East? The solution to that problem was the key to the Age of Discovery. They would need to find another route to the East, bypassing the Islamic Turks. This burning desire to find an alternate route to the Indies would be the impetus for virtually all the voyages of discovery of the next two centuries. At first those voyages would be solely attempts to round Africa and to so open up a direct trade route with India, but eventually the Spanish would take a desperate crack at opening a westward route to the Indies and would instead stumble upon a whole new world to explore, exploit, and conquer. The pioneers of the Age of Discovery were without a doubt the Portuguese, and truth to be told, they had begun their maritime ventures even before Constantinople fell to the Turks, for entirely separate reasons. All the Ottoman advance did was spur them on to even greater urgency. The Portuguese were uniquely positioned to lead this great endeavor by virtue of their fortunate geographical location as well as their even more fortunate decision to focus on commercial rather than military expansion. The father of Portuguese exploration was, without a doubt, Prince Henry of Portugal, quite deservedly styled Prince Henry the Navigator. Henry, the third son of King John I of Portugal, was 21 years old in 1415, when he, his father, and his brothers captured the Moorish port of Ceuta, pretty much opposite the Rock of Gibraltar, in a heroic surprise attack. Ceuta was the terminus for several trans-Saharan trade routes, particularly the West African gold route from Timbuktu, and Henry set his mind to opening up a maritime trade route with the cities and empires along the coast of Africa. Henry was also intrigued by the rumors of the legendary realm of Prester John, the fabulously mighty and wealthy Christian ruler said to be somewhere in the hat of Africa, or India or China depending on who you asked. Henry's crusading spirit, wedded by the seizure of Ceuta, lusted for more, and if he could only find the kingdom of Prester John, surely they would aid their fellow Christians in their battles against the heathen. Four years later, in 1419, Prince Henry was granted the governorship of Algarve, along Portugal's southern coast. It was here Henry would spend the rest of his fruitful life, pondering and probing the mysterious oceans and lands to his south and west. He gathered around him cartographers, navigators, mathematicians, astronomers, and adventurers, all with an eye towards one thing and one thing only, discovery. Henry wished to press down the African coast, establish a trade route with the wealthy Timbuktu, which would bypass the Muslim lands, and who knows, perhaps even make contact with the kingdom of Prester John and find a route around Africa and to the Indies. This was no easy task to undertake, even though there were classical precedents for voyages down the coast of Africa. For example, Herodotus recounts in his histories how the Egyptian pharaoh Nekoth II sent an expedition out from the north coast of Egypt, and that they had returned by way of the Red Sea three years later, having stopped annually along the African coast to plant food for the next year. Of course, Herodotus himself dismissed the account as idle boasting, on account of the fantastic claim made therein that on their way around the coast, the sun stood to their north 
rather than to their south as occurs in the northern hemisphere. Of course, we know now that this is in fact the case for those in the southern hemisphere, so we no longer have any positive reason to disbelieve this account. However, that's not to say we should accept it unconditionally, as anyone with even the most cursory familiarity with Herodotus' work can attest to. In slightly less remote antiquity, we are told by an abridged Greek translation of an old Punic account that the famed Carthaginian Hanno the Navigator sailed far down the African coast. Based on the sketchy geographic descriptions in the account, modern scholars have concluded that Hanno reached somewhere around Sierra Leone or Cameroon. But despite these alleged precedents, most of Europe was extremely reluctant to venture down the African coast. For starters, Europeans knew nothing about the coast of Africa beyond Cape Bojador on the Saharan coast, at an approximate latitude of 26 degrees north of the equator. Cape Bojador was known in Arabic as the father of danger, and many believed that to go beyond the Cape was to enter the earthly realm of the devil himself. Cape Bojador was an outward judging promontory along the coast of Africa with hidden submerged rocks, fearsome currents, and extremely adverse winds. If one wished to pass around the Cape, one had to go far out to sea, completely out of sight of the coastline. Up to that point, any ship which ventured past the Cape never returned, at least since the days of remote antiquity. The Cape also had many physical features which terrified the mariners. Indeed, they would probably terrify most of us today if we were to encounter them knowing that we're entering an area which none had yet passed alive. For starters, the miles of shallow water near the Cape were teeming with unseen reefs, and when waves would crash against them, the jets of water which would shoot into the air appeared to be steam, and sailors whispered that it was the steam of hell. Adding to this impression of boiling water was the fact that great schools of sardines lived in these waters and would frequently rise to the sea surface. The explosion of bubbles this would cause, combined with the sound of their swishing tails, seemed to the sailors an awful lot like the boiling of the sea. Even worse, the presence of magnetic rocks in these treacherous shoals rendered their compasses useless and they just spin in circles, which meant that the sailors had absolutely no reliable means of navigation. Legends abounded about the devil's lair beyond the cape. It was said that in the sultry tropic climes the sun poured down sheets of liquid fire and smoke and fog obscured the sky. All kinds of terrifying sea beasts were imagined living down there, and it was an accepted orthodoxy among many sailors that God himself would smite any man who crossed Bojador with unhealable blackness for his temerity in entering the realm of the devil. Now, it's very easy for us to sit back in our armchairs and smugly mock the ignorance and superstitious terror of our forebears, but that sort of attitude is not really fair. After all, even in our modern, very self-consciously scientific age, don't we see a similar grim fascination with the Bermuda Triangle? Aren't most people terrified at the thought of sailing in or even flying over it? And unlike the Bermuda Triangle, at that point in time it was actually true that anyone who went beyond the Cape was never heard from again, quite unlike our own Bermuda Triangle. 
So again, I think we should give these poor sailors a break and sympathize with their aversion towards the very real terrors of the unknown, and an unknown with a fearsome visage and singular reputation at that. Anyways, the first decade or so of Henry's explorations bore fruit in pretty much all directions but the direction in which he wished to go, south. His captains and explorers discovered the Azores and Madeira, the former of which had been technically known to exist by European mariners, but knowledge of it was scanty at best and non-existent in reality. The islands were swiftly claimed and colonized by Portugal, and they would come in time to serve as bases which allowed the Portuguese to wander even further afield. Portugal also tried to claim the Canaries off the coast of Morocco, but unfortunately for them, the Castilians had already established a presence there. That little drama between Portugal and Castile will be recounted at greater length next episode, when we examine the Castilian, which would come to be the Spanish reaction to Portuguese advances. But despite all of these successes, Henry was growing increasingly frustrated with each successive year that his explorers failed to clear Cape Bojador. It was definitely not for a lack of trying on his part, Every year he sent out an expedition to clear the cape, and every year that expedition would return with its tail between its legs. Their object foiled not by shipwreck and disease, but rather by sheer terror of the horrors beyond. In the meanwhile, Henry and his mariners were designing the Caravel, a new type of sailing ship which managed to combine durability and nimbleness, and which swiftly became the vessel of choice for explorers. Prior to the caravel's introduction, European explorers were limited to the coastal barks, which proved unsuitable for the arduous task of southerly exploration. The bark had a fairly deep draft and keel, which made it unsuited for treacherously shallow water, and a fixed square sail, which made the ship fragile and unable to weather the powerful currents and strong winds one would encounter on these southward expeditions. The caravel, by contrast, had a much shallower drafting keel, and the rigid square sail was replaced by the lateen sail, which was a triangular sail which could be swung around to catch the wind regardless of the wind's direction. This made the caravel faster, sturdier, and more suited for exploration than its predecessors, and if Henry's sole achievement would have been to inspire the caravel, that would actually be sufficient to place him among the great inventors of history. But as we will now see, that was just the beginning. The turning point for Henry and his ambitions was the year 1434. Up until that point, the expenditure sunk into his repeated attempts to clear Cape Bojador simply did not seem worth it. He tried and he failed. He tried again and he failed again. He tried again and he failed again. Year after year, his attempts were failing and by this point many nobles were grumbling that the entire endeavor was useless and had no chance of success anyways. After all, didn't everybody know that the torrid equatorial zone was entirely unsuitable for human life? But Henry himself only dug in his heels, and his command to his captains now became, cross the cape at all costs, even if you achieve nothing else. Surmounting this physical and psychological barrier, became Henry's single-minded, almost obsessive goal. In this he had the full support of his brother Edward, 
who had by now succeeded their father as king. In 1433, immediately following his accession to the throne, Edward confirmed his support for his brother's exploration attempts, granting his brother the newly colonized islands of Madeira and the Azores. In 1434, Henry got the breakthrough he so needed. That year, he sent out one of his most intrepid explorers, and I know I'm almost for sure mispronouncing this name, Jill Yanis, with strict instructions not to bother returning if he hadn't succeeded in clearing the Cape. Yanis had actually been sent out the year earlier as well, and Henry at the time had high hopes that the brave Yanis would be able to accomplish that which his predecessors had failed at. When it turned out that Yanis had balked at the danger of the Enterprise, and had instead diverted his ships to the Canaries, bringing back just a few slaves, the furious Henry lashed out at him, saying, If there were even any truth in these stories that they tell, I would not blame you. But you come to me with the tales of four seamen who perhaps know the voyage to the Low Countries or some other coasting route, but except for this, don't know how to use a needle or sailing chart. Go out again and heed them not, for by God's help, fame and profit must come from your voyage, if you will but persevere. And so, here was Yannis sailing out again, determined this time to succeed where the others had failed, and to so regain the favor of his prince. And this time he succeeded. When he reached the Cape, he swung his ship out to sea, and when he returned, he found that he had indeed bypassed the treacherous Cape Bojador and was now on its southern side, in peaceful waters. Yannis went ashore, picked some plants, and sailed home in triumph. He had passed the unpassable. Once Bojador's perils and terrors had been defeated, Henry's project was never again in serious jeopardy. No obstacle, not even the Cape of Good Hope, would prove to be as tenacious or difficult an obstacle for the Portuguese to overcome. From now on the exploration efforts would continue, even if domestic and political issues at home would slow their pace. The Portuguese moved slowly but steadily southward. Over the next two years, Henry dispatched three expeditions beyond Bojador, probing another 200 miles or so down the coast to a gulf which they named Rio de Oro, or River of Gold, in anticipation that this might be the mouth of the legendary river which led to the sources of those caravans of gold which traversed the Muslim lands. As it turned out they were wrong, and what they thought might be the mouth of the great river turned out to be nothing more than a desolate and sandy inlet. Still, the name stuck, and the area was called Rio de Oro up until the mid-20th century. The actual discovery and navigation of the real-life Rio de Oro would not come until 1455, when the Portuguese would explore up the Senegal River. No serious expeditions were undertaken between 1435 and 1441, as the result of both the catastrophic Portuguese attempt to capture Tangiers, which resulted in a humiliating defeat and the captivity of Henry's youngest and dearest brother, Prince Ferdinand, as well as the death of King Edward from the plague in 1438. King Edward left a young heir, Alfonso, but the instability and political turmoil of the early regency required Prince Henry to devote all of his attention to local politics, at the expense of his beloved projects of exploration. But by 1441, 
Henry was able to turn his efforts back to his exploration of the African coast. Over a period of five or six years, Henry sent out a series of four expeditions under a knight in his service by the name of Nuno Tristaio. On his first expedition, Tristaio reached the modern-day border of Mauritania and captured around ten natives whom he brought back to Portugal as slaves. In truth, this was the very beginning of the Atlantic slave trade, but the entire sordid topic of the slave trade we'll need to wait for quite some time until we examine it in great detail. And trust me, we will examine it in great detail, only I would like to wait until this podcast arrives at a more advanced point in time before detailing this detestable centuries-long crime against humanity. Tristaio's second voyage was also momentous, as in it the Portuguese discovered the island of Arguin and the first human settlement of all their voyages since 1420. Of course, Tristaio and his men attacked the peaceful village and carried off 14 of them as slaves. Over the next several years, dozens of Portuguese slavers would ravage the area, severely depopulating the entire region. By 1455, hundreds of slaves would be shipped to Portugal every year, victims of a rapacious power convinced of its own virtue. On Arguin, the Portuguese built a fort and a trading post, or factory, which doubled as a southern base for ships to refit and replenish, thus allowing exploration even further to the south. On his third voyage, undertaken in 1445, Tristaio finally achieved his great object. He had succeeded in sailing beyond the Sahara and had encountered the jungles of Senegal beyond. He had achieved one of Henry's stated goals, to outflank the lands of Islam and to find the pagans beyond. The sea route to Senegal had been established, and gold would now begin to flow back to Portugal. Tristaio also discovered the mouth of the Senegal River, but he was unable to explore it due to inclement weather. On his fourth voyage, he and his compatriots' depredations finally caught up with them, as he and his crew reaped the whirlwind they had sown. On that voyage, they had sailed farther than any had sailed before them, and rounded the shoulder of Africa which of course the Portuguese thought was the southern tip of the continent. As they were navigating a large African river, which remains not positively identified to this very day by way of rowboats, they were ambushed by some 80 natives with bows and poison arrows. Of the 22 men on the rowboats, only two may have survived. Such was the potency of the poison. The remaining seven sailors on the caravel were attacked as well, and two of them would die in agony of their poisoned wounds. The remaining five seamen, who were one mediocre sailor and four boys, managed to cast off the ship and get off the river and onto the open ocean. There they spent a terrifying 60 days drifting aimlessly, completely lost, until they were picked up by pirates off the coast of Portugal, where they were indeed fortunate to have drifted. The death of Tristaio, One of Henry's favorites, combined with an increase in native resistance to Portuguese incursions, put a damper on Henry's exploration attempts, which would not seriously resume until 1455, when the aging Henry would send out his final battery of exploratory expeditions. These expeditions were sent out under Alves Cadamosto, a Venetian navigator in Henry's employ, and Diego Gomez, a Portuguese knight. 
these expeditions navigated the great rivers of Senegal and the Ivory Coast, accidentally discovered the Cape Verde Islands, and made contact with several of the local kings and tribes. It was at this point, in the year 1460, that Henry the Navigator died. He did not live to see the culmination of his project to reach the Indies, but it was he, more than any other, who set into motion those forces of discovery which would eventually bring about the European discovery of a new world. After Henry's death, the Portuguese continued their progress down the West African coast, although that progress can be more accurately described as fits and starts rather than as steady progress, more convulsive explosions of exploratory interest than a constant unending pressure. For a number of years following Henry's death, Portuguese interest in exploration waned, much to the consternation of King Afonso, who was an ardent proponent of further expansion. The reason for this was that, as far as the merchants and sailors were concerned, further African exploration was arduous and perilous, and hardly guaranteed rewards, whereas the already discovered lands on the Guinean coast offered an established and lucrative trade in both gold and slaves. To rectify this state of affairs, Alfonso realized he needed to incentivize the merchants to further explore down the coast of Africa. To accomplish this, he sold a five-year monopoly on Guinean trade to a Portuguese merchant, Fernayo Gomez, in exchange for a substantial annual payment, and most importantly, a promise to explore 100 leagues, or roughly 350 miles for each of those years. Gomez's explorers exceeded their quota, and by the time his contract expired, his explorers had crossed the equator and reached as far as modern Gabon. Along the way, in what is now Ghana, the Portuguese discovered Elmina, which was the site of a thriving gold trade between the local tribes and Berber merchants. There, the Portuguese set up a trade post or factory, which would later become the infamous Elmina Castle, chief trade node of the entire slaving market. The 1470s saw further Portuguese expansion arrested on account of a war between Portugal and Castile, which we will discuss in further detail next episode, but by 1481, King John II of Portugal was ready to resume Henry the Navigator's work. King John sent out a man who had proved to be one of the greatest Portuguese navigators of the African coast, Diogo Sao. Sao made two voyages and explored more territory than any explorer who preceded him, from where Gomez's explorers left off just below the equator, all the way down to the present Namibia, some 20 degrees south, or approximately 1,400 miles. Sao was able to penetrate so far largely as a result of the earlier established Portuguese settlement at Elmina, where he stopped and resupplied. From there, he was able to move swiftly southward, making efficacious use of both land and sea winds. In August 1482, Sao perceived that he must be at the mouth of a great river, as the water was fresh and seaweed abundant at a full five leagues out to sea. Sao and his men turned eastward and sailed into the mouth of the Congo River. Sao immediately opened friendly relations with the Congolese natives, assuring them that he came with peaceful intentions and merely wished to trade with them. He was well received and the Portuguese and Congolese exchanged gifts, and native guides took several African tr Christians to meet their king, 
who they reported lived some distance in the interior. The plan was for Sao to pick up the men on his way back home. From the Congo, Sao moved on southward to Angola, before turning around and returning to the Congo. When Sao returned, he was irritated to learn that his delegates still hadn't returned from meeting the Congolese king, and he unilaterally seized four Congolese visitors to a ship to come back with him to Portugal. He made it clear to the Congolese that he would return within 15 months and bring the hostages back with him, at which time he would exchange them for his men. Sao returned to tremendous acclaim in Portugal, and the king was delighted to meet and converse with the Congolese hostages one of whom was a highly intelligent noble named Casuto, who had picked up sufficient Portuguese to furnish the king with a wealth of information about the Congo. Casuto and his three friends were treated with great respect throughout the duration of their stay in Portugal, and were furnished by the king's orders with garments of the finest silk. Before long, Sao set out on his second voyage. We have only sketchy details regarding this voyage, but we know that he returned to the Congo and exchanged the hostages, to the great rejoicing of the Congolese. From this point on, the Portuguese would have tremendous influence in the Congo, and indeed by 1491, the King of Congo and his family had converted to Catholicism. From the Congo, Sao moved southward, where he erected a stone cross at Cape Cross, in modern-day Namibia. This is presumed to have been the farthest extent of Sao's expedition, and on his way back home, sometime in 1486, the redoubtable explorer died. His work was almost immediately picked up by another intrepid explorer, one far more famous than any we have mentioned thus far, Bartolomeo Diaz. Diaz set out from Portugal in 1487, only two years after the death of Sao. Taking advantage of his predecessor's extensive exploration of the African coast, Diaz would be the first European to discover the Cape of Good Hope, which he, according to legend, more accurately named the Cape of Storms. As a matter of fact, Diaz himself missed the Cape at first as the result of one of those storms, and it was only after finding the coast to his north that he realized that he had indeed sailed past the southernmost tip of Africa. The route to the Indies was now right in his grasp, and Diaz wished to push forward and consolidate his fame and reputation by being the first European to reach the Indies by a direct sea route. But, alas for Diaz, his long-suffering crew was now growing mutinous, and with a heavy heart, he was forced to turn his ship homeward. Diaz saw the land of India, said a Portuguese chronicler, but like Moses and the promised land, he did not enter it. It would be left to another, more famous Portuguese to finish Diaz's work. If Diaz was the Portuguese Moses with regard to India, then the Portuguese Joshua was Vasco da Gama. Da Gama set sail in 1497, with the command to attempt to finally reach the Indies. Vasco da Gama was successful. Da Gama made stomps in Mozambique and Mombasa on the eastern coast of Africa, but was received with hostility by the local Muslim populations. Finally, upon reaching the friendlier port of Malindi, he was given a local navigator who knew the route to India. On May 20th, 1498, da Gama and his men landed in Calicut, the foremost of the city-states which dotted the Malabar coast.
At long last, after nearly a century of effort, thousands of lives and colossal expenditures sunk into the project, Portugal had achieved her goal. At first da Gama had hoped to persuade the Zamorin, or King of Calicut, to agree to a Portuguese trade monopoly, but pretty soon he realized that the local Arab merchants, who feared a Portuguese encroachment on their monopoly, were persuading the Zamorin to act against him. War between the Portuguese and Calicut would come in time, and its result would be a smashing victory for the Portuguese, but that is no longer our story. Despite the fact that the Zamorin did not give da Gama a formal monopoly, in effect, the century of Portuguese efforts ensured that the Portuguese would hold a de facto, if not a de jure, monopoly over Indo-European trade. For starters, only the Portuguese were able to make the long sea voyage to the Indies, as they were the only power who had numerous bases, forts and trading posts down the African coast to refit and resupply their fleets. And secondly, although in our present information age we may find this hard to fathom, the Portuguese managed to keep their precise discoveries and trade route a secret for nearly a century. And indeed, it was not until Sir Francis Drake's raid on Cadiz in 1587 that the English would learn its exact details. And so it was, for years after da Gama's voyage, the Portuguese would send out armadas of trading ships to stock up on goods previously gathered in Portugal's ubiquitous factories or trading posts. But as you all well know, events had occurred over the previous decade which eclipsed da Gama's success. A Genoese man named Cristoforo Colombo, better known to us as Christopher Columbus, had attempted to beat the Portuguese to the Indies by a westward route, and would instead discover a whole new world. Next episode, we'll go back quite a few years and examine the Castilian and later Spanish competition with Portugal, and the diplomatic wrangling which would give Spain papal sanction to subdue a vast new continent. I'll see you then on From Settlement to Superpower.